Welcome to the dark forest Jackie and her pals will never bore us Shameless confessions about our obsessions Will make us laugh and smile So let's explore the dark forest And dark down for a while Hi, it's Jackie Cation And you are listening to The Dork Forest The website's JackieCation.com DorkForest.com TheDorkForest.com if you like a determiner Let's do the credits. Patrick Brady's going to fix this audio and video. Vilmos works on JackieCation.com. And Mike Rickberg uh, sang the song with his wife, Sarah. He composed it, and he will sing his version of the Mexican hat dance at the end of this show. Thank you so much for listening to The Dorks Forest. Here's a scoop. I'm doing stand-up online. A lot of Zoom shows will eventually go back on the road. Sign up for my email list. It's easy to get off. It's harder to get on than it is to get off. And no harm, no foul, if ever bored. JackieCasia.com. Sign up for the email list. You'll find out about my weekly Zoom shows and stand-up on the road eventually. You may donate to the show if you would like. I would like. Sure, I would. There's PayPal, Jackie at JackieCation.com, and there is a PayPal button on both DorkForest.com and JackieCation.com, and there's Venmo, if you like Venmo, Jackie-Cation, oddly enough. If you have listened to all of the shows, go to DorkForest.Bandcamp.com, I think. The Dork Forest has a Bandcamp page. You can listen to a, but a lot of ones that are free from pre 2000 nine when I started pre-recording and uh, then there's a live episodes that cost me a couple of bucks. So I charge you a couple of bucks. There's also some stand up. There's a story uh, album. That's very exciting there. And um, other than that, I have a lot of merch in my garage. Feel free to order if you know anybody who doesn't have any CDs or the DVD. And uh, you can follow me everywhere at Jackie Cation. Let's get into the show. Hey, it's Jackie Cation. I am in my garage with Greg Proops. Welcome back to the program. One of my favorites forever, Greg Proops. Hello. Hi, Jax. It's so nice to see you. Thank <laughs> you for having me in your garage. I'm in yes. my porpoise of fruititude here. That is a porpoise of fruititude. What on earth? What is the blue right? glowing thing? Those are that's a blue glowing, glowing ball. Is that it's a green? Good. Is that a green blowing glowing ball? Yeah, this are blue glowing all? balls. Very proud of. Got it in San Francisco at a hardware store. See, even San Francisco knows how to do hardware stores. That's right? insane. That's yeah. crazy, Bill. Well love played. That. Yes. You. Love your sign. Everybody, feel free to watch uh, the program on um, YouTube as well as listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm talking with Greg Proops. It's at Greg Proops, G-R-E-G-P-R-O-O-P-S. He's everywhere. He's the best. Listen to all of his comedy. Watch all of his things. Uh, throw money at him. Shower him with, uh, <laughs> with love and joy. So, But you have been on the program a couple of different times. Roman history. One of my favorite ones was the history of baseball. I believe we got to 1930. And uh, we started, we didn't even get to the end. And uh, so, uh, but this time we're going to do a deeper dive into more baseball, but just the Negro Leagues, which was a segregated part of baseball. Correct? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, like, like all of America was and is, uh, <laughs> it's still, uh, it was a, it was at once a, a reaction um, to segregation. Also, um, you know, a, a glorious thing on its own because the people who played in the Negro leagues and the people who ran the Negro leagues uh, and tried to make it happen 
were doing as best they could under the conditions they were dealt, which was they uh, rented major league parks um, yeah. and, and often outdrew uh, the white crowds, especially during World War II. And that's when it became evident that everything had to change. But also, uh, they weren't allowed to eat in restaurants or even use bathrooms and gas stations, stuff like that. So the unendurable um, torment that they basically had to live under as traveling mm-hmm. uh, baseball stars uh, it speaks volumes, I think, about one, uh, white America's cruelty, and right. um, uh, uh, two, about the resilience, bravery, color, uh, elan, pizzazz, and forthright, you know, stick of black people in this country to keep it going for a long time. Right. And just the humanity of, of I want to play baseball. Mm. I want to play baseball. I and I don't care that you say black people can't play baseball or whoever can't. You know, it's that whole thing of I'm gonna. It's gonna be. It's gonna be horrible. People are gonna be horrible to me. I'm still gonna get to play baseball. I'm gonna be good at it, and I'm gonna be as famous as I'm gonna be, whatever that is. But I'm gonna get to do the. Th- that's that's what I love about sort of humanity and 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 every group that's been marginalized by white people forever. Right. Is that Mm. they're just like, I'm still doing the thing. I'm still going to write music. I'm still going to write books. I'm still going to, I'm still going to, you know, be a doctor or a dentist or whatever the damn thing I want to be. And it's going to be harder. And, and, and people are going to be, it's always so interesting to me when, when our fellow whitey magoos (laughs) are mad, right? You're just like, and what they're mad at is that my mediocrity could make me even angrier at how much better you are at me than a thing that I want to do well, because you're willing to work harder and you're willing to suffer more for it. And, uh, and, and then, but because if you think about how good anybody is at anything, uh, who's a person of color and how much harder they had to work at it, I could be mad because I'm like, well, I want to play tennis. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, but I'm not willing, it turns out to do sit-ups and practice, <laughs> or practice oh, 10 hours a day right. <laughs> yeah. from the time you're six years old. <laughs> right. And it turns out, uh, so luckily that's not how my racism manifests. My racism is much more subtle. I was going to uh, say, I like to keep it, mine on the lowdown. Uh, it's, but, it's, but again, you know, I, I have a, a friend uh, who moved to Atlanta uh, during this from Brooklyn and she voted there. And she's black. And she said, you're welcome. When I last time I talked to her. (laughs) And then she said, you know, they elected a black man and a Jew down here. They put a black woman in the White House. And this is what you get. They literally attack the Capitol the next day. The next day they attack the Capitol. You're talking about white anger manifesting itself in mediocrity. Those people were policemen, teachers, bartenders, uh, paralegals, couple lawyers. Yeah, soldiers. A lot of them had uh, military or paramilitary training. They yeah. were not outcast members of society that live at the dregs of the end of the block. They live with their mothers. They live with their families. Right. Um, they have jobs. They, they, yeah. they were well-funded, you know? Yeah. This, this wasn't, it, we have to quit reducing everybody who's a, a redneck psycho Christian to a trailer trash that lives with a blue tub in their front yard, like in a, a movie with uh, Jennifer Lawrence. It's not, <laughs> it ain't like that. You know, these are middle-class yeah. people. Yeah. And uh, pr- professionals, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. We have a profession. We're clowns. They have a profession. They're firemen or whatever, you know. Right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 they and they still take their their fear and their mediocrity, and they're like, "Well, it can't be. It can't be." And you're no. like, "Well, I don't even understand how this affects you. 
you know, because I mean, they they don't even enjoy. And this we're reading off, but but my the purpose of government, the reason I pay my taxes, is for roads and water and education and health <gasps> and and FDA and and you know, no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service. Same reason. Uh-huh. Same reason. Seatbelts. Seatbelts. Smoking Same inside. Reason. There's a lot of things we have to do that you don't yeah. want to do. Go through the security at the airport. There's a whole reason for a bunch of stuff. We do a lot of things. And, uh, and it's, it's not trampling your freedom. It's called being a responsible adult that can accept uh, uh, your the what happens, the ramifications of your actions. And they're not willing to do that. As you, you just said it. And Jennifer always says it to me, my wife, uh, not my girlfriend, but the other one, uh, says. Oh, good. Uh, that's what the problem is. That why people are so mediocre. They're used to being completely disconnected and skating on everything. That their fear and their anger manifests itself in these awful ways. With organizing to keep black people out of baseball was something yeah. that happened. To go back to the topic at hand, yes, in please. the 19th century, baseball became very popular, especially started from the Northeast, and then during the Civil War, as we discussed in the other episode, when the Southerners were stuck in prison camps with Northerners and vice versa, yeah. uh, they all learned to play ball because there's nothing to do all day. So right. they, they did makeshift ball games and everybody went home and started a ball club. Okay. And so it, that didn't exclude black people. Black people also played baseball uh, from the mm-hmm. very beginning and uh, also had star players at this era. Well, we're talking about the, the latter half of the 19th century. And because of uh, uh, right after the Civil War, because of the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, black men attained an, a measure of autonomy in so much as they were allowed to own things and mm-hmm. vote, right? Right. So, of course, that all had to come crashing down in 1876 when they tried to uh, uh, do what they tried to do the other day at the Capitol. Right, they, right, they right. The, the election away from Hayes, who was going to keep Grant's policies going, and they get, I mean, Tilden, and they gave it to Hayes, who right. was clearly a uh, racist. So then they were able to start Jim Crow. But this is where my point is going. There were black professional players playing in white professional leagues in the 1800s. No one talks about it. It's not something that people talk about a lot, but it really did happen. And, and this one is of them, right after this. This is 1865 this, to 1876. This is, this is uh, uh, the 1880s is when, see, professional baseball didn't really get off the ground until. Oh, until the 80s. At, well, they were playing it in the 1840s and 50s, but the leagues began in the 1870s. So. Then there became minor leagues to help supply the major leagues, right? Right. The, the, uh, the National League started in 1876. Okay. American League in 1900. But there was a bunch of other leagues in the 19th century. So in those professional leagues, including one which was called the Union Association, um, a black man played. And his name was, fantastically, Moses Fleetwood Walker. Yes. And his brother, <laughs> who also played, was named Welday Wilberforce Walker. Okay. And they called Moses uh, Fleet. That was his nickname because his, right. his name was Fleetwood. His middle name was Fleetwood. And of course, Fleet is always a great sports nickname. Yes, so it is. So eventually they began to play other professional teams. And they, w- there was a supreme racist on his team named Tony Mullane, who was so good looking that he was nicknamed by the sports writers, the Adonis of the box, right? <laughs> a, a pitcher's pitch. They still call the pitching mound a box, even though it hasn't been a box for 125 years. It okay. literally was in the old days was like cricket. A drawn oh. box. A drawn okay. box. And okay. then then they started to make it a mound. And mm-hmm. so now the game that we watch, there's a mound. But in the 1800s, it was a, a, a strip, a pitch it, that they ran and down. And they went like that. Oh, like, okay. Like cricket. Underhand. Underhand, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you, uh, not to get into the rules, but they showed up with uh, Fleet, Walker, and the team, refu- his pitcher, this pitcher, 
w- wouldn't take signals from him. Fleet Walker was a catcher. So he'd oh, okay. signal, and the signals were always the same. Fastball, curveball, yeah. whatever else you got, right? So, right. <laughs> so it's That's one, cool. two, three, and then, you know, mixed it up so that you- Is that you know, still true? Yeah. But it's they just, they don't, you know, they they put other signals in too to mix up so that you don't know which one is the one that- Oh, like, okay. I might go like this, and then that, and then that indicates that the one after this is the one I'm giving you. So you, okay. you're forced to guess all the time, which oh, is of course what the last few World Series scandals were about. Uh, the Houston one two years ago, where they were banging on the garbage can in the clubhouse- yeah. One bang meant fastball, two bangs meant curveball. I am not kidding. It's still the same game in that regard with cheating. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> you, uh, they refuse. It's a simple game. You throw the ball, you right. catch the ball, you hit the ball. Hit the ball. And exactly. you cheat Just the like same way for the last 125 years. Right. You scare, so. scare them. They're young. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he, re- he refused to take signals from them. So he'd just throw any old pitch he wanted. And then eventually other teams refused to play them on the field. So, ah. The black players that played in professional ball, including Moses Fleet Walker, were forced out of the game. They were playing in the high minors, which is the next step to major leagues, which means some of them clearly were already at the major league level. One was named Frank Grant. He was a superb second baseman. He was light-skinned. And in the parlance of the day, uh, and the parlance of America forever, he could pass, as they say, right? right? Okay. Not as a white person. He could pass, but as a different ethnicity. So- um, John McGraw, who was the most famous manager, uh, and he was a famous player in the 1890s, and he was a famous manager in New York City, which means he was a really famous manager because the whole world at the turn of the century was about New York City. There was like 20 daily newspapers, you know, right? Wow. Everything yeah. was New York-centric in those days. Yeah. Uh, Broadway, you know, George M. Cohen, this is the era we're talking about. Uh, okay. Stanford Wyatt and, you know, uh, 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 the what's his name? Or Rockefeller, right. And yeah. what's his name eating turtle soup? Diamond Jim Brady eating turtle That's soup at right. Delmonico's and <laughs> all that jazz. Yeah. So uh, uh, along with that, of course, there's Scott Joplin and W.C. Handy and oh. Ida B. Wells. And, you know, there's Black History's happening, too. Right. Uh, the, um, he wanted Grant on his team. He knew that Grant was a superb, and McGraw was a, uh, a keen judge of talent, as they say, albeit a, a punchy, pugnacious Irish so-and-so. Right. Um, the other teams called him Muggsy, which he hated, right? Ah. If you called him Muggsy on the field, you were going to get a, because that's how he was, right? Right. And then the, the newspaper men, uh, prone as they were to color, uh, called him Little Napoleon because he was- a Short. Right? And he was- yes. Oh, yeah. just a, a, a tiny he, fist of a man is what you're telling he, me. Yeah. When he yeah. played, he, he kicked other players. He held their belts. He threw dirt in their faces. He hit umpires. Like, that's the kind of player he was. And he was five <laughs> foot six, right? Right. He weighed about 125 pounds. Okay. And so when he became a manager, he was scrappy. Yeah. Let's say the least. The last thing he did when he retired and he managed for 32 years was file a grievance with the league about the umpires. That was okay. his last official act. <laughs> So to get to the two good parts of his personality, right. one, he tried to get Frank Grant to camp, right? So he brought him to the Giants camp, said he was an American Indian. There was no gentleman's agreement about American Indians. Okay. There was only a gentleman's agreement about the Negro, as it were. Wow. Wow. And, and they called it a gentleman's agreement. Wow. Well, All right. it was known to be. That's what yes. everything that white guys, the reason why white guys are so- right. The reason why white men are so mad now, why Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and all that, is that it isn't that way anymore. There's income tax. There's the common good. 
you don't literally just get to commit sexual assault and shoot people and steal right. everyone's property like you did as a white man for 250, 300 years of American history. Right. So the fact that that changed is what's got them all in a tizzy. Um, so, because they were it, on deck to use a baseball analogy, <laughs> they were they were ready to just start grabbing it, you know, just yeah. bringing it to themselves and Ooh. and lining up well, the, the gross the things they wanted to do. Right, the Indians didn't have a lot of say in what happened to them. They, they got bowled over by the. So it, it, yeah. they pretended he was an Indian, and they called him. I'm not kidding, Chief Takahoma. Oh. They brought him out to the game. He right. was working out. He was working out with the players. Yep. And uh, everything was going okay. And then black people who knew he was a black player because he was a famous black player. He was right. like I say, maybe the most famous of his era, decade. A bunch of black people showed up in the stands, and they always met made them sit. In, in segregated white parks down the line right. yeah, or in the outfield. And often, as you'll find if you ever go to the Negro League Museum, behind a chicken wire fence, right? So the black people are literally fenced off from white people. So when you go to the Negro League Museum uh, and you walk in the first area, there's a diamond, the Field of Dreams, and it's got all, right. all the famous statues of famous black players. But in front of it, the wire. And the president of the league, uh, Negro League Museum, Bob Kendrick, who's a good friend of mine, always starts the tour there and says... The chicken wire. This is the the symbol of the segregation. We're now you see now you're outside, yeah, outside watching from behind the wire. When we get all the way through the museum, you're poured out onto the field, and now you have a different point of view from the black point of view, which yeah. was you're back here, you're over yeah. there, go over there, go over there with your people. So a bunch of black people showed up, right. started cheering for him, and the other team figured it out in a second. The other team was like, that is not an Indian. That's a Negro, and you're not having him on the field. So he had to pull him. When he died, and he died quite young, in his 50s, he had a fancy apartment in Manhattan with his wife. Uh, okay. Um, in his drawer was a list of all the black players he wanted to sign over his long career in baseball that he would have had on the Giants. But was basically just couldn't because he knew the owners would never stand for it. Right. The but John was, McGraw guy. So. He was a famous, I mean, I was saying he was a saint or anything, but he no. understood. And so the man who started the Negro Leagues was named Rube Foster. And can he was I, a ball player. Can I ask, let me yes, ask please. you one quick question. What, uh, where is the Negro Baseball League Museum? Kansas City, Missouri. And it's Kansas. there because um, uh, the Negro Leagues was started there about two blocks away from it um, by Rube Foster. And then uh, he owned a team called the, the Chicago American Giants. Um, this gentleman, uh, who you know from Ken Burns' documentary, uh, um, I was Mr. Right Buck O'Neill. Yeah. Mr. Buck O'Neill wrote a book about his experience in baseball. Yes, he signed okay. Ooh. And um, he played for the Kansas City Monarchs. He played first base. He was also a scout for the Cubs. He was also the first black coach in the major leagues for the Cubs. Oh, I'm wow. reading this book now about Rube Foster called The Fields of Freedom. It's by a black writer named... Phil Dixon is a historian right. of Negro League ball. Next door, adjacent and in the same building to the Negro League Museum is the Jazz Museum. Because famously, Charlie Parker and Count Basie are from Kansas City. And so okay. the symbiosis of black culture and the black renaissance in the United States in the 20s and 30s is obviously the Harlem Renaissance where all those famous writers, uh, painters, dancers, uh, uh, musicians. But right. all across the country, because they all toured. And mm -hmm. Kansas City was a hot spot. Because uh, Missouri always had a giant African-American population and the ball team would play in the daytime. And then at night, they'd all go see Count Basie or whatever. So there's okay. millions of pictures of them all. They all knew each other because they were black celebrities in, right. in a segregated world. Yeah. 
So maybe the musicians got to stay at a slightly better black hotel than the ball players right. did, but they ran into each other constantly. So Cab Calloway had a baseball team. Louis Armstrong had a baseball team. Uh, 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 it wasn't uncommon. Alina Horn's father was a, a numbers runner in, okay. in Pitts, Pittsburgh. And one of the owners, the people who took over black baseball um, during the depression were um, a lot of criminals because they weren't allowed to be uh, CEOs or bankers because they were black, but they were allowed to be kingpins. And so right. the kingpins bought teams and stocked them, built ballparks, paid the players. Uh, uh, and then one guy in Pittsburgh had his own bar that he ran the whole operation out of. It was called uh, the Green, uh, the Crawford Grill. Okay. And that's, ergo, the team was called the Crawfords or the Craws okay. if you're down. And um, <laughs> his name was Gus Greenley, and he was a well-funded gangster. Uh, and the gangstering that they did was numbers running. And numbers running is uh, an arcane thing now. But in those days, it was a big deal. You'd bet a nickel or a penny, I'm not kidding, pennies, on right. a series of numbers that would be in the paper, like in the stock market. And therefore, the loot was brought back to the Crawford Grill and counted upstairs. Okay. So bags of coins. Bags of coins. Right, right, right. Just and bags so and pennies. Lena and Horn. Yeah. Lena Horn, when she was a kid, the famous singer and actress, counting Lena pennies. Lena Horn. And yes. then later, of course, became a singer downstairs and then went to right. Hollywood and had a gigantic career as a superstar. Yeah. So what we're talking about is not that long ago. Like, for instance... Uh, uh, just to, that's to answer your question about Kansas City. That's that, that's kind of why it's there. The Monarchs were a team from the very beginning of the first organized Negro League to, and, and they also had Satchel Paige on them, who's the most famous Negro League player. He pitched for them in the forties and they were in okay. the world's, that Negro League World Series, which was called the East West game because okay. their leagues weren't national American. Their leagues were the Eastern League, the Western East. League. Oh, okay. And Kansas how many, City being how many the teams? West. Yep. Kansas City's the West. Okay. Okay, uh, and how many loads, teams were but they, in? They changed and they switched. So it fluctuated. 10, oh, 10, okay. eight, eight, 10, like the big leagues. But there's independent teams everywhere. Um, so Charlie Pride, the country star who just passed. Yeah. Played for the Memphis, played for the Memphis Red Sox, or Red Caps. Uh, his brother, Mac Pride, was a star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. Charlie played in the Negro Leagues briefly and then tried to play in the big leagues, but was thrown off the Mets bus in 62 and that's when he decided to make a go of it as a country center and moved to Montana. Hey, Greg. And was a minor. So one of my favorite artifacts in the Negro... I'm Iyer. Is it good? Yeah. Oh, this inter- is... Uh, it's unstable, but I'm plugged in. Yeah, uh, I'm plugged in. T- turn your video off for a second. Okay. Yeah. Is it... Uh, okay, try that for a sec. Yeah. Okay, so... You better? Um, yeah. So anyway, the, one of my favorite artifacts at the Negro League Museum is a signed baseball by um, Charlie Pride. Because he, oh, he was wow. a ball player and he became a singer. He, but what he really wanted to do was play ball. So evidently, he used to show up at the Negro League Museum. And, um, some, and Bob Kendrick said, somehow there was always a guitar. And next thing <laughs> you know, Charlie Pride is kissing angel good morning and love her like the devil when you get back home. What I'm getting at is it wasn't a long time ago. I'm 61. Right. The yeah. Negro Leagues went until basically 1960. Everyone always says they stopped, but they actually carried on in various forms until I was born. Uh, and they... Uh, when, I, uh, when, did, when did they supposedly stop? Was there well, like a... Everybody says when Jackie got Jackie, signed in 47, right, because 47. the attendance dropped off 
because black people wanted to see black people play big league ball. And finally, Mm -hmm. there was a big league player. By the end of the year, the first season Jackie played, there was three or four black players. Okay. Because other teams, meaning only the Cleveland Indians and the Dodgers, (laughs) because no one was brave. Yeah. Uh, The St. Louis Browns, because they were terrible, they tried it with a few black guys. Okay. And then by three or four years later, you've got your Willie Mays, your Monty Irvin. By five or six years later, you've got Henry Allen and Frank Robinson. And so Henry Allen, who just passed a couple of months ago, right. a month ago, played in the Negro I Leagues. have a Hank Aaron. I have a Hank Aaron uh, b- a baseball card. I have yeah. A, yeah, from the Brewers. He might and- be the greatest player of all time. I mean, you could argue that. And okay. he played for three months with the Indianapolis Clowns before he came up, which is what an <laughs> avenue black people from Alabama had at that point in their sports career. Okay. You didn't get to go to a big fucking college or something. You know, you didn't go to, you didn't get a scholarship to uh, ASU or some big athletic school. Right. So that they could, the scouts could see you. So the scouts right, had to. They did. They had to beat the bushes, as they say. And uh, one of the things the scouts did was uh, once Jackie got signed, the interest in black players, as you might imagine, rose quite, quite rapidly. And so they started looking for them. So literally everyone who got into the big leagues for the next five, 10 years after Jackie was a superstar. Like there are very few mediocre black players from the 40s and 50s. Right. They, they <laughs> all came. Be, you had to be Willie Mays, Henry Aaron. You know, you've right. heard of all of the black players. <laughs> right. It was so it was now. But in so in 1947 is is what they say is the end of it. But it was there were still black teams playing. They played and all over the country. They barnstormed. I don't think the clowns and uh, broke up till 60. Uh, there was still itinerant black teams playing all over the country for different people. Uh, OK, that carried on. And so there's a whole generation of black players that played in the 40s and 50s in the Negro Leagues. And I have a book about them here called The Negro Leagues Revisited, which oral history, oral history. The guy went around and interviewed all of them. And they played, some of them went on to play minor league or major league ball in white leagues. Right. Um, But all of these players and a couple of women played in the Negro Leagues. Three women played in the Negro Leagues. Uh, Connie Johnson, Tony Stone, and... Connie Johnson. Uh, Mamie, who was her, I was reading her account yesterday and she's fantastic. Stone. Mamie Peanut Johnson, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Peanut, awesome. Yeah, she was so small, so they called her Peanut. And then she said, I would have done it again. And there she is later in her uni. Oh, uh, awesome. So her manager, uh, there was three women in the Negro Leagues. They played alongside the men and that was in the 50s. And their manager was this fellow whose name is Oscar Charleston. Okay. His career had started way back at the turn of the century. He was a soldier in the Philippines. When he came home, he was a teenage um, ball player who started to play in the Negro Leagues for the Indianapolis team, the other one, the ABCs. And okay. later went on to be considered by almost everyone kind of the greatest player of all time. So I did an interview with a fellow named Sam Lacey, who along with, uh, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on his name. Not Hilton Smith. Uh, uh, well, in any case, Sam, Jackie Robinson right. and the movie, you saw the movie 42, the writer character who follows him around and looks after him up again. is the first black man allowed to sit in a press box. He had to sit in the stands the first year Jackie played, the stands, and with a typewriter like this. 
So then wow. the next year, the New York sports writers allowed him graciously to join them in the, in the press box. He and Sam Lacey yeah, and a fuck. bunch of other black reporters uh, petitioned Major League Baseball ceaselessly to let black players in, especially after the war. A lot of them had yeah. fought in the war. Yep. And they were like, look, I thought we were doing this to fight um, prejudice around yeah. the world and Nazis. And you guys are acting like Nazis. And Right. Uh, it took Landis, uh, the old commissioner, died finally, thank God. Mm -hmm. And he was a screaming racist. And he told them there's no rule against it. He lied to them every time they came in. He just Republican them. They'd come in and they'd say, will you let black people play? And he'd go, there's no rule against it, gentlemen. It's not my, you know. Uh, it's not my call. Not my call. And you're yeah. like, oh, really? Yeah. So he croaked. And uh, <laughs> Happy Chandler yeah. uh, took over as commissioner. And Happy Chandler yeah. was a Southerner. Mm -hmm. But he said when the time came to decide about desegregating and letting Jackie in, if I don't let a, 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 a guy play baseball because of the color of his skin, when I go to heaven and meet my maker, that might not be a good enough answer. Right. So I'm going to let it, I'm going to sign off on it. And he did. And he let mm -hmm. Jackie in and a bunch of teams threatened to pull out of the league. And he had to hard ass a bunch of owners the commissioner actually wrote a letter and said, I don't care if this ruins the league for 10 years. One man has as much right to play as another, and I'll close your fucking team down. You want to leave the league, leave the league. Like, he really had to do that to get these white yeah. owners to even entertain having one superstar that was black on the field. Right. So Sam right. Lacey said to me, I interviewed him in 1997, and he wrote for the Baltimore Afro-American which along with Pittsburgh Courier and uh, lots of other black papers around the United States was the organ uh, of how, uh, you know, black communications in the days before uh, mass telly and whatnot. Right. So they had their own system of papers. And uh, I went to his office at the African American and I asked him one question, tell me about the Negro Leagues. And he spoke for about an hour and a half. And, wow. uh <laughs> Plug and play, much like yeah. yourself, Mr. Greg Proops. Right. Go. At the, at yeah, the yeah. end of it, I said to him, can I ask you a couple questions off the, you know, we put away the microphone. Yeah. And he went, yeah, certainly. And he had a Baltimore accent, you know, but because he was so old, he was 90 something then. Yeah. He was, uh, um, he said he was a, uh, sold, um, he was concessionaire when Walter Johnson was a pitcher, right? Walter Johnson pitched from 1907 to 1925. So he, okay. that's how old he was. He had, he said, <laughs> Uh, in the in the summer we sold uh, lemonade, and in the winter, in the autumn, uh, consomme. You had that uh, almost southern accent that Baltimore right, right. people that, have. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it gets a little. So it, I said to him, long. "Who is the yep. best player you ever saw?" And he said, "Oscar Charleston." And I said, "What about Willie Mays?" I, 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 he's my hero. Willie Mays is my hero. I put it right to him, and he said, "He was better than Willie Mays." And then I asked him two more questions. I said, Leo DeRocher, who was Jackie's first manager. Okay. I said, was Leo DeRocher prejudiced? And he went, no, he just wanted to win. And I said, and I want to ask you this, and all the time you're around professional baseball, did you ever hear any white players say that they wish they could add some black guys to their team so they would have a better team and could win the pennant? And he went, no, they were all interested in keeping their jobs. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. So what makes Oscar Charleston a great, better player than Willie Mays. What, what, what was Willie, what was Willie Mays good at? Hi, Willie I don't know Mays anything was, about baseball. Right. <laughs> Willie Mays was the most exciting player. And okay. like uh, Barry or in our lifetime, Reggie, or you've heard of Babe Ruth. And the reason you've heard of Babe Ruth yes. is not only was he an awesome baseball player, he, as a, a, 
Lawrence Ritter told me as another baseball writer who interviewed all these baseball players that played at the turn of the century that were teammates with Cobb and Ruth. So he knew all these guys real well. And they told him all the Ruth and Cobb stories in the world, right? About how mean Cobb was about how Ruth used to shag girls and drink beer and eat hot dogs and smoke cigars and shit. But Larry Ritter said to me, Babe Ruth would run around the bases after he ate a homer waving his hat like that. And then he'd get to the plate and I swear to you, Jackie, it was a dwarf that the Yankees had as their mascot. A dwarf. Yeah. And sometimes you see him in photos at Yankee Stadium and they would rub the dwarf and then he'd shake hands with Lou Gehrig and he'd wave his hat at the crowd and uh, like he soup, he hot dogged so hard. Um, he, he would fight with and the that was, crowd. Wait, He'd get on the Babe dugout Ruth and scream at them like King uh, Kong Billy and Banks? stuff. Like Babe, Babe Ruth. Yes. Yes. So, but what I'm, what I'm saying is, Oh, Babe Ruth. Mays replaced okay. after Ruth was Dizzy Dean. We're talking about fan favorites. And then in the fifties, okay. when Willie Mays started play, okay. Jackie was a fan favorite for black people because he's like the Martin Luther King or, 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 um, uh, uh, Rosa Parks of baseball. Like he did the thing that right. no one else could do. Right. Like first. The, the, yeah. yeah. He was, he was a uh, uh, Marian Anderson at the Washington monument. You know, they, he got right. to do it, but his personality was um, prickly. And after the first two seasons where they told Jackie not to fight with white players and white umpires, they let him, they let him play like a man, like a, re- <laughs> like a regular person yeah. would be like, like an adult I don't mean a human man, being. But, yeah. Like right, an adult a human, human being. Yeah. So then you see famously films and pictures of Jackie in the 50s, like this in umpire's faces, which is a a giant moment in America. It's a giant moment when black men can fucking scream at authority figures and fight with them, you know, and all in the baseball way, Mm -hmm. kicking dirt and, you know, that nonsense. Yeah. So Willie Mays came along about four years later and he was swift as a bird. He could hawk in the field, right? This famous film of Willie Mays is him turning his back on the ball in the World Series. Yeah. And running it down football style. He catches it over <laughs> his shoulder and then flips around and throws the ball back in and his hat flies off. And that's the most famous footage of Willie Mays. It's from 1954. So he, he was exhilarating. Now, when I was little, he was still playing. He played in the Negro Leagues too. Okay. Played for the Birmingham Black Barons. Okay. And this, you'll love this. Uh, there were several Birmingham teams and Birmingham is a hotbed of baseball as was all of Alabama, but Black teams often name themselves after the white teams of the town. So not only was there a, a white crackers team in Alabama, there was a team called the Black Crackers, which is the greatest, <laughs> greatest <laughs> cultural like, appropriation. Exactly. So Here. Willie Mays was exhilarating. He, right. he, he, he lost his cap when he ran. He caught the ball like this. He didn't catch the ball like this. Everybody catches the ball with their glove up yeah. like that. He caught it basket style like that. Boom. Uh, okay. So he could he hit 660 home runs. He led the league in steals. He played the game like a Negro leaguer. Let's put it that way. Negro leaguer doesn't think about going from first to second. You're thinking about going from first to third on a ground ball to the right side, right? Okay. You're taking okay. off when that ball's hit. You are swinging at shit that's over your head. You are fucking every tactical advantage. You're trying to outthink the other team because that was what Negro League Baseball was. It was the thinking baseball league. They didn't oh, really? just go base okay. to base like in the big leagues. Babe Ruth changed the game. In the teens, guys stole a lot and bunted and ran. By the time Ruth came along, he was hitting so many homers that everybody just like, let's just hit homers. Okay. But the Negro Leagues, the Negro Leagues, and why Oscar Charleston is so great, the Negro Leagues didn't play like that. So- 
you're talking about, I'm putting a, a famous Negro League play invented by Rube Foster. It was called the bunt and run, right? So I got a guy on first. My job is to put the ball down the third baseline on the ground like that with a bunt, right? Bunt. Right. So I, yeah. So the third baseman has to come in. Now, my guy on first has already taken off before the pitch was thrown. So now he's almost a second. So now the third baseman has to come in and field the ball and try to make a play at first or stay back on the ball and let the catcher try to do it. Either way, my guy's going from first to third on this, and I might go to second when they try to make the play at the plate when he's coming home. So you're really trying to force the game all the time, right, to go round and round and round. It feels it's- like it's more of a team game than a, than a star game. You know, like like to 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 have to think about everybody else's roles, and if you could trick people, you know, like sort of, it's it seems more of a it seems trickier. Uh, it is. Than, There's way more than, strategy. Yeah. The oh, that's cool. The strategies was more complex because, and it was stolen by the major leagues. Like I say, up until Ruth, the major leagues played a version of the black game that. They learned about by watching, you know, they mingled. And yeah. McGraw, who I told you about earlier, yep, had a very famous pitcher named Christy Matheson. And he was very different than the ball players of that era because they all uh, chewed tobacco and, and um, wore sluts on the road. And Christy was a Christian. And all he would play checkers in the clubhouse and bridge. Yes. And he went to Bucknell. So he had a veneer of a college education. He was also okay. tall, tall and great looking in Anglo. Okay. So... He was six foot three in those days. And he, you know, and they oh. called him the, the Christian gentleman. So his most famous pitch, he, he had perfect control. He was a really superb pitcher, was called the, uh, the fadeaway, which now we would call screwball. You hold it like that. And when you let go of it with your right okay. hand, you're spinning it. So it's breaking in on a right-handed batter. So it's a tricky little pitch, right? Purportedly, right. McGraw, who was fraternized with Rube Foster, brought Rube Foster over from the Negro Leagues to show Christie how to perfect it. Because Rube Foster was a super pitcher, as was his right, brother. Right, right. And so they were stealing style. They were, McGraw's style was very much Negro League style. Bunt, 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 steal, 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 run, run, run. A million signals, a million uh, uh, fake outs, deeks, uh, uh, trying right. to game the uh, game the refs. Uh, they were, you know, push the umps as far as they could go. Um, right. So that's the difference. And then Charleston was a terrific fielder. He played a very shallow center field right behind second. So balls hit over his head. He would chase down. Like he'd run under them. Oh, and, and like, like the Willie Mays football thing kind of? Yeah. Okay. But he purposely played right behind the infield, which allows you to make plays in the infield on balls that are hit just over the second base. Right. But also very few players ever did it that close. Secondly, he was physically very strong. He supposedly could take a baseball and rip the cover off it with his hands. I don't know if you've ever held a baseball, but it's pretty tightly wound, right? He, he yeah, could yeah. just... Argh. Pitchers loved it when he played first because he threw the ball around after every out, right? Which he still did. Yeah. You see them always... In baseball, the, the ball goes around the infield after every out right. and then comes back to the pitcher. Yep. Do it. Like in Little League, they do it. But in the big leagues, they still do it. They, yeah. The catcher throws the ball and then they all whip it around and then the pitcher uh-huh. gets it back. Well, in the old days... When you could spit on the ball and chew licorice and tobacco and shit like that, they all, right? Everybody lived it <laughs> And so when they, Charleston would play first, he'd right, loosen the seams. So then when you loosen the seams, you've got a sphere. A baseball's a sphere. The whole yep. point of pitching is to deflect hitting. The whole point of hitting is to defensively protect the play and get that right. ball out there. So as soon as the spheres 
has a seam lifted on it. It just no longer yep. flies in a correct. It attains all sorts of weirdness. So that's yeah. why guys cheat and pull yep. the seams up and spit and put tacks in it and all this KY jelly. Yep. So the Negro Leagues never outlawed any of that shit. So the pitchers were doctoring the ball the whole bloody time. Right? <laughs> so black players who went to the big leagues were like, what? We get a new ball every batter and the guys can't spit? You know, like, what? Yeah. Like we're used to guys throwing at our head and then, you know, <laughs> so Ed, he, right. He led the league in hitting. He had a temper. Uh, I was reading yesterday um, in uh, this book, black ball stars. There's an, in, a whole chapter on Charleston. He died. So he was not in it, but other players who played with him talked about him. Right. And they said they were on a train and a clan guy got on with his hood. And came into their car and started in on them, right? And Oscar Charleston was such a bad ass that he grabbed the guy's hood and pulled it off and went, get the fuck out of the car. Right. And they ran the guy out. But to do that that's, in the 20s in America could get you killed, right? That's He punched easily. a white umpire famously at the beginning of his career in a game and lived. So okay. he was, so later on, uh, he was a great hitter, a great fielder. What they say in baseball is five tools. Can you run, hit, throw? And hit with power. He could do all those things. Okay. I don't know that he was better than Willie Mays because I don't know that you can measure people against each other via decades. But I've had more than one person say it to right. me. And Sam Lacey said it to me as well. This is also him managing here. And also, as I showed you, Peanut, he was her manager as well. He managed uh, women and men um, and was a very awesome uh well, the, well, I was telling you about Pittsburgh in the 30s. They brought yeah. him in. He was at the end of his career, and he played and managed on the most famous team, which was the Cross of the early 30s. And okay. um, this player played on that uh, uh, briefly Satchel on that team. Page. His name is Satchel Paige. Yeah. Now, this book's Satchel my favorite Page. baseball book of all time. It's very, it's called Satchel Paige's American. It's by a white guy named William Price Fox. William Price Fox, okay. in 1970 something, Page was alive, went. Down to Kansas City, where Paige lived, and yep. he's wearing a Monarchs uniform here. That's what it red, red and blue, uh, red and white. <laughs> yep. And he found him at the Twilight Zone bowling alley, uh, the Twilight Zone lounge in the bowling alley at Kansas City, where Paige was doing what he always did, which right. was drink beer and smoke Marlboros. So he walks in <laughs> in this book and goes like, "I'm from Look Magazine, um, Bill Price Fox, right?" and um, they right. gave me like 2000 bucks to do a feature on you. And Paige is like, sit down, Bo, where are y'all from? And he goes, North Carolina. He goes, North Carolina, I'm from Alabama. Well, it's like, you know, I'm gonna call you Bo, which he called everybody. Yeah. Like Babe Ruth called everyone kid, kid and meathead. Okay. Babe Ruth didn't know the names of players on his team. He literally did not know the names of the <laughs> players on his team. <laughs> Wow, I bet you it was real fun. That's to work how self-absorbed with. he was. Yeah, yeah, that and, is um, that is uh, tank. Yeah. So when when Babe Ruth died, fantastically, um, they gave him a giant funeral just for a sidebar here. A giant funeral in New York City. You know, of course, he was buried at St. Patrick's Cathedral, like uh, every good Catholic. Okay. He's a ca he's Catholic from Baltimore. Okay. And um, uh, it, it was blistering hot that day, and the guys' names that he knew on the team, Wade Hoyt and Joe Dugan, some of his old buddies, were carrying yeah. the casket. Right. Right. And it was fucking hot. And Joe Dugan, the third baseman, says to White, uh, 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 Wade Hoyt, the pitcher, whew, I could go for a beer. And Wade Hoyt goes, <laughs> suck at the babe. 
(laughs) (laughs) So Paige and him have adventures in the town. He takes him to a rib joint. He takes him to a dance hall where the orchestra leader stops the orchestra and goes, ladies and gentlemen, Satchel Paige. And they throw a spotlight on him. And this guy's sitting at the table with him. And he gets up and does a cakewalk, right? Kicking his legs over his head. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This book is the greatest baseball book you'll ever. There's no baseball in it at all. He goes and gets a muffler at the muffler (laughs) shop with Satchel Paige. Satchel Paige organizes a team of kids. They're going to go barnstorming. Satchel's 70-something. And he goes, at at the end of the book, Bo, you want to go with us? And- the writer's like, I can't, I got to go do a thing. And then, of course, at the end, he's like, why didn't I go with Satchel why? Page? <laughs> Satchel Page invites <laughs> you to do something, you go. So uh, he talks about shopping with Jelly Roll Morton in the 20s and the kind of suits that Jelly Roll Morton would wear, like what? yellow yellow socks and green suits and pink boutonnieres. And, oh my I God. love Jelly Roll Morton. <laughs> Jelly Roll Morton, as you and Leon, uh, Leon Redbone, who passed away last year, um, okay. Leon Redbone was a music expert as well as being a wonderful singer and um, okay. musician. And he he would have said Jelly Roll Martin's the greatest American musician of all time because he, you know, he strides jazz. He's at the beginning of uh, so much uh, American history. I accidentally found out about Jelly Roll Morton in college. And uh, I was like, cause I knew Scott Joplin, but I didn't know right. Jelly. Yeah. And I, uh, I took some weird music class and, I was like, who is this guy? And it was, it was eye opening. It was, it was great. It was, he would do, he was the first guy to do rent parties. Yeah. He was, you know, dude, dude was willing. He was cameo before there was cameo. He was way much Patreon before there was Patreon. And so, uh, evidently his wardrobe, according to Paige, was uh, startling. Uh, that's, and uh, there's, there's pictures of Paige and way he dressed in the 40s, of course. Uh, you know, big shoulders and the pimp socks. And uh, 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 two-tone shoes and fedoras. Uh, So what makes Paige uh, the great, I I think the most famous and greatest of all the Negro League players is he played from the 20s until the 60s. Wow. Yeah. uh, What? 40 years? He went around the world, right? They played in uh, Central America, uh, 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 Canada. uh, um, Asia? No, everywhere. Black teams did go to Asia. If you go to the Negro League Museum, there's an awesome picture uh, black teams going there in uh, the 30s. And the, the black team's standing there, the uh, uh, Japanese team there. And the, it's so long ago that the Japanese writing is different than it is now. It evolved from then. So the famous player who played for Seattle and the Yankees, Ikiro Suzuki, uh, who's going to go in okay. the Hall of Fame in our league. Uh, he played, he was a star in Japan, but he's also a star here. Uh, outfielder, leadoff hitter. Again, a lot of steals. Okay. Kind of ne- Negro league He could bunt. Lots of hits, super fast. Um, Saw the picture at the Negro League Museum and was able to piece together what the Japanese said and gave them a huge donation. He was like, no one ever talks about this chapter of how black people came to Japan and were played and were received quite well and were allowed to, you know. The other big move for Japan was Babe Ruth came there in the 30s and did a barnstorming tour with a bunch of guys. And... He was older then. He was in his 40s. But they had never got to see him, and they were desperate to see him. So right. everywhere he went, the place went bananas. And one of the guys who was with him, and you'll love this, Jax, was a Jewish catcher named Mo Berg. Okay. Mo, Mo Berg. Berg. Mo Berg was put on the team as like the backup catcher, right? But what really Mo Berg was doing when they were there was spying. He was going around Tokyo and taking pictures everywhere they went, Yokohama, all over, because they went all over Japan. 
He was taking, he would go out in the daytime with his fucking expensive ass Pentax 1930s camera, you know, with the, yeah, right? super yeah. sexy, you know, yeah. you see, you see like those war, wartime photographer, Robert Kappa kind yeah. of, you know, yeah, uh, and t- take pictures of fucking installations and shipyards. And they used all those pictures in World War II to bomb the Japanese. Wow. And that Holy was on a barnstorming sense. tour in 1935. They, they sent Berg along and there, Berg spoke like 10 languages. He was a polyglot and a right. polymath. So they stuck him in. No one yep. noticed him. He was no a backup catcher. <laughs> right, right. Backup catcher. <laughs> he what, couldn't hit. Explain what barns, barnstorming, I think of uh, biplanes and people standing on them. Oh, right. What well, a, that's one, that's one form I, of barnstorming. <laughs> barnstorming is yeah. when you take a team with you and it's not a professional uh, uh, organized sanctioned league, right? Like say, for instance, uh, after the season was over, a bunch of guys from the Dodgers and Giants and all the teams in the bigs kind of came together as a super group and right. went around in a plane or in a bus and went to a bunch of different towns and booked all these gigs where they'd play an afternoon game and then go have a big, you know, barbecue that night or whatever with the locals. That's right. what barnstorming is. So okay. the Negro Leagues were forced to do it. Forced because they couldn't. Right, they so had they, to raise money. They had to. They had a glad hand. They're just like, let's hang out with the fans. Let's get yeah. them to buy us lunch. It'll be great. That sometimes yeah. people threw money on the field. Sometimes people gave them beer. Sometimes yeah. people fed them. Uh, if they were lucky and they were in a black town, they would play uh, for black fans. And then right. there'd be a church dinner after. So then everybody cook for them because they were yeah. literally eating like sardines out of a can on the road, taking a shit in the woods. I mean, their life was hard, right? And they'd right, play a game right. in the morning and then mm-hmm. they'd drive all day, play a game in the afternoon. And so here's a couple of things the Negro Leagues invented. And this is why Satchel Paige is the greatest, to wind it all together. The Negro Leagues yeah. invented nighttime baseball. White teams were not playing baseball at night. Well, everybody okay. worked all day, even in the 30s, right? People yep. always worked all day. Yep. Because this is America and we drive people into the ground. Right. And so <laughs> in order to get a revenue during the Depression, because the Negro Leagues was really hit hard by the Depression, because black people were really, really suffering uh, no right. money, just like now, no money to work, you know. And, right, right, because um, they're not they're not first in line when it's we're going to fix the, the government's going to fix something. So right, yeah. yeah. So they brought these giant uh, lighting rigs with them that were portable on wheels. You see pictures of them. Let me see if I can. This is a painting. This book, by the way, is uh, this is an artist named Kadir Nelson, and yeah. you may remember during the middle of the summer when the police riots were happening. They gave a, a cover uh, for a. He did a cover with uh, Armin Aubrey and everything for the New Yorker. Okay, He's a beautiful painter, <laughs> right? And uh, he does a lot of his work is real heroic, which is what I love. Like, here's a painting of Page pitching, but the oh, way wow. he the way he draws him is in that heroic style, you know? Yeah, yeah, so they, that, that's amazing. They brought they brought uh, lights with them. And they'd set up the generators. So all of a sudden in the middle of the game, everything would go, and then the generators kick back in. And the ball players were like, we couldn't see the ball half the time, like, but people came because that would work. So the two big days in Negro League Baseball were Thursday and Sunday. Sunday, because everybody, and the reason why I'm dressed up, I'm always dressed up, as you know, but the reason why I did this too and put on an extra special tie was... um, Negro League fans were very well-dressed and particularly Sunday because their world was, they worked six days a week. Yep. 
And they were maids and Pullman porters and shoeshine boys and newspaper people. They had all the same jobs, the entry-level jobs that we have uh, uh, Latin Americans do in California. They had to pick cotton and, you know, sow fields and whatnot. So on their day out, they did not work on Sunday. They would get up in the morning and go to church. And then you dressed up as much as you possibly could for church, hat, tie, flowers. Right. The women in their best clothes, best gear. Yeah. The the fancy shoes. You've seen pictures in the sunglasses, right? The 40s sunglasses. And then the ball game. Yeah. The ball game started after church. And then after that, the dinner. And then after that, the drinking and the dancing. So Sunday was, and the other big day in Eagle League was Thursdays because maids had Thursdays off. Oh. Maids. Okay. So much of the black female population were cleaning women and maids that, Mm -hmm. that. that that was their other big day. Yep. So a very big tradition in Negro League ball was to dress up as badass as you could. Um, so right. when, when they traveled, Rube Foster's first professional team, when he started the Negro National League, he would hire. Well, here's here's something that this is what they faced in the 20s. OK, Bronzeville in. Yep. A beautifully made sign to put that horrible message up. When they traveled yeah. in the 20s, uh, the ballplayers, Rube Foster, because he wanted them to be elevated and respected, yep. would hire a train car. So you could hire your own train car and they would attach it yep. to the end of a train. And this is how they dressed when they got on those trains. Yeah. This they is how tri- they traveled. Yes. They dressed up to travel. And they looked incredibly dapper. My brother, uh, Amtrak just discontinued those attract, uh, those attached uh, cars. Special cars, really? Yeah, they just discontinued them, which is a devastation to my brother, Russ, who's always wanted to retire uh, by buying one and then traveling wherever he wanted. Doesn't that sound great? Yeah. yeah, yeah Train's a great is, way to travel. Yeah, it's just, it's just much more relaxing, quite honestly. Well, I've been all um, over uh, Europe in a train, and I'm sure you've been around on a train. Yeah. America's train system is crappy compared to... To how it uh, can be done, how it, sh- how it could be done, yes. Well, it's, you know, people laugh at the high-speed train, but you can take the, uh, or the channel from London to Paris mm-hmm. and then pick up a high-speed train and literally be in the south of France in like a couple hours. It's pretty yeah. wild. I mean, right? It's it's literally just a half a day. You you're yeah. in London, and then all of a sudden you're in the south of France. Um, I have not can, done that, but I that is either, a, but you can do it. Well, I've, I've <laughs> taken the channel many times because Jennifer and I often go between Paris and London when we're allowed to travel. And yes, it, it, the uh, the the food from England not so good, but the food back from France a little better. Uh, right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it dumps you right out at the Garden Or, and there's cabs everywhere. And then, boom, you're in the center of Paris like three hours after you leave London. Oh, that's, I went to Paris for the first time a year ago, October. And oh, thank God you went. I know. I was, it was the great, I've been saving up for it. And then we keep going other places. Also a, a gift. We got to go to Iceland. Uh, we got to go to Vietnam. Uh, but... Finally, I was like, no, no, seriously, we're going to France. And so we spent a week in Lyon and a week in Paris. And uh, it was the most amazing thing. And it was the week that Will Durst, uh, very sadly, had his stroke. And so I picked up a set in Paris uh, because uh, 
was it email Phillips emailed uh, texted me and said, are you in Paris? Cause Will was supposed to do a show there. Do you want that set? And I was like, I do, I do want that set. So I got to do a set in Paris. And yeah. Was it at La Java or whatever? What's the name of that? Uh, it, it was, was in Carol's some weird gig? neon. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. He was, uh, he didn't know who I was. So he brought in um, Sniglets guy from London. Rich Hall. Rich Hall to close. And I was like, that's fine. I, I don't, I, I just want to. And I, I'm, I'm on my second honeymoon and my husband's yeah. incredibly, <laughs> incredibly understanding because he's like, no, no, you love doing stand up. Please do stand up. Right. And uh, so, but here's my question though. Rube Foster. So he founds the Negro League in yes. the, in the twenties. 20s? Yeah. 1920. And that's why the anniversary was last year. So they're supposed to have the hundredth okay. anniversary. And how did he do it? He how did simply he do it? Who was said about his investors? Uh, he uh, got together a bunch of other like-minded black entrepreneurs, um, C.I. Taylor, who ran the Indianapolis team, other teams. Uh, I think they had about eight teams in the league. It was like Detroit, uh, Indianapolis, Chicago. There might've even been two Chicago teams. And he just established it in this office and said, um, we are the ship all else the sea. In other words, we're the legit Negro league. We're going to okay. be called the ne- First of all, you understand this, Jax. By sheer force of will, by the way, your question is well-founded, but he literally got a bunch of guys, put them together and made it up because he knew that the big leagues weren't going to let them in. He'd been a pitcher and his brother had been a pitcher and they played in organized ball, but what passed for organized ball before, and by the way, they always call it organized ball as if black people played disorganized ball. They had (laughs) schedules, they had teams, they had bookings, they had people, they traveled like everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He went to the big leagues and he said, why not have a black team? So you don't have to desegregate. There'll simply be a black team that's in the league with everybody else. But no, we don't have to, you know, fucking sit together, drink out of the same glass. But you got to play us. And then white leagues, no. And of course, imagine he thought that would be the way in. He thought the way in for black people would be to have one or two teams in the big leagues and then they yeah. would see that black players were as good as the white players, which they were. But right. any indication, as we just talked about, when they let Jackie in, the next yeah. 10 years, eight most valuable players in the National League were black. Wow. So yeah. Jackie was the most valuable player. John, uh, uh, Roy Campanella was the most valuable player three times in the American League. I mean, in the National right. League. Willie Mays was the most valuable player. Henry Aaron was the most valuable player. Ernie yep. Banks was the most valuable player. Twi- this is all in within letting le- a few black guys play. Right, so, right. Like the, <laughs> almost every guy that they let play became most valuable players, which pretty much. And yeah. uh, so Rube Foster started it, and then he became sick, and he couldn't do it anymore. He died. The thirties right. came. The gangsters took it. Uh, not took it, but the gangsters were able to fund it and keep the greed right. going. And then during the World War II, uh, a lot of interest in black ball. Because um, they weren't letting black guys fight on the front line because of the prejudice in the army. So they were often the supply corps, uh, famously mm-hmm. the Red Ball Express, which delivered food to the troops all over Europe was a black unit. Okay. Uh, they were allowed to have their own segregated air corps, as you recall, the Tuskegee Airmen, who had their right. own unit, but they were all black, no whites. Mm-hmm. And then 
they were always the ones who had to load the ammo on the ships. So there was a famous explosion in the Bay Area during the war that killed loads of people because it's oh. the most dangerous fucking job in the world. Taking right. the ammo and putting it on a pitching boat full of ammo. Right. So that was what they made black people do during the war. So right. some of them, uh, Page was far too old to be in the army at that point. He was already old. And the Negro League game was uh, on the Sunday in Washington, D.C. and New York were drawing 35, 40,000 people, and the white teams were drawing 20, 25,000 people. So they were out. The white owners were happy to take their money. They rent them the stadium, let them have their black yeah. game with their black people, and mm-hmm. then wouldn't let the guys use the clubhouse. They had to go dress down the street anyway. Oh, Jesus H. So uh, part of the reason right. why there was segregate, uh, what stopped being was they realized the potential of black dollars. Right. You know, at a certain point financially, it's- it was stupid to keep black people out. But prejudice, as you know, wins the day almost always. So Satchel Paige during the war. Um, sorry, there's a leaf blower. No worries. <laughs> it's, uh, I think that this will have many exciting audio moments and uh, everyone's going to work around them because this is fucking amazing. Greg Proops. Thank you well, so much. Let me just and finish. I'll finish it up. Thank you. Uh, during, I, yeah, during, during, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I do have a question, though. Was yeah. there a Milwaukee team? Was there a Milwaukee Negro League team? Mm. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. I'm certain there was because Milwaukee yeah. has such an unbelievable uh, African-American heritage. It's one of the great yeah, Midwestern towns. Yeah, it's, it's a great community. Yeah. The reason why mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, the, the whole uh, discussion over Wisconsin was to disenfranchise all the black voters of Milwaukee. The, re- the discussion over Detroit and Atlanta was the same reason. These are yeah. famous African-American communities that yeah. have given... When Henry Aaron, let me put it this way. When Henry Aaron um, got to the big leagues, he had yeah. a very good fortune to play for the Milwaukee Braves. Yeah. For whom he, with whom he played for the first uh, 11 years of his career. Then they moved to Atlanta and he never liked Atlanta. He wrote a really good book called I Had a Hammer, right? His nickname is <laughs> The Hammer. But right. instead of If I Had a Hammer, because he hit 700 and fucking home runs, he wrote yep. I Have a Hammer. And right. in the book, he says, I loved Milwaukee. We won the World Series there. I didn't have no trouble in Milwaukee. People were nice to me. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Atlanta. And all of a sudden, it was die, die, die. Uh, we're going to kill your family. When he broke the record for the home runs with Babe Ruth, he had to hide before games with FBI agents. And he had to have his family under 24-hour protection. And he got stacks and stacks of death threats every day. Right. And they were terrible to him that year. And he right. said it really hurt his feelings because there's a terrible code word that white people use about black people. And it's dignified. Dignified yes. means you didn't freak out and scream when white people threatened to kill you your whole fucking life. <laughs> That's right. what it means. Right. White That's people are means. allowed to act however they want. So finally, mm-hmm. baseball wasn't. Um, completely ignoring the situation with him. They knew what was going on, although the commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, was a complete asshole. Right. They started a letter-writing campaign by children, and that's what turned the tables. Mm-hmm. Children started writing Henry Aaron and saying, I want you to break the record, you're my hero. And the white yeah. children. Yeah. And when everybody started writing him, then everybody kind of like, all right, all right, don't kill the black guy. As my friend Warren Thomas used to say in one of his routines, uh, Here's the first Negro to play in the white leagues. Please don't shoot him. He might hit a tater. Uh, what? 
don't even the, the, get that. The PA announcer. He might hit a home uh, run. Okay, okay. Here's uh-huh. the first Negro to bat in the major leagues. Please do not shoot him, as he might hit a tater. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Satcha Page had an article written about him um, in uh, Look Magazine, or the Saturday Evening Post. Okay. In 1944-45, like war. Right. And every white family in America got the Saturday Evening Post in those days. Yes. It was the weekly uh, uh, chat. You know, it was like kind of like Woman's Day mixed with people, mixed with life. You know, there was feature stories and then there how to make a cake. And then, oh, look at this, you know, look at this Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Pictures, whatnot. Like when you look at old life magazines, I was reading one out in the garage a couple weeks ago. I have a World War II one, which goes into Rudolf Hess's confession. I'm not, yeah, uh, uh, not Rudolf Hess. um, Albert Speer's confessions to the War Crimes Commission after the war. Real detailed, like this is in Life magazine, and Ooh. about how he cast all the other Nazis as drunks and weirdos. It was so much like what we just have. Anyway, wow. Um, uh, so it was a beautiful article about him. It didn't. It didn't do the step and fetch it thing. It didn't characterize him as because Page was an old fashioned black man from the South. So he spoke mm-hmm. a certain way. He was very colorful. Like mm-hmm. he'd, he'd go, uh. Wild child, let me ask you something. You know, like he, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. he, he was a really colorful dude. And he, ha- he, he called himself a number one pitcher. He spoke mm-hmm. in the third person. He misremembered everyone's name that he ever played with on purpose. He played with Bob <laughs> Feller, Bob Feller and Dizzy Dean. And he was very good friends with mm-hmm. Dizzy Dean. Dizzy Dean appeared to be not very prejudiced. I think because he grew up a poor um, white person in the South. So he had mm-hmm. to pick cotton too. Bob right. Feller grew up in... in um, Iowa and his father built him a baseball field. I'm not kidding. When he was a child, Bob Feller was a, before he graduated high school was pitching in the major leagues. He was 17 years old, throwing guys out and pitching no hitters in the major leagues when he was a teenager. So, but he okay. knew the value of barnstorming. So the season's over. This is the thirties, forties, mm-hmm. because Dizzy and Dizzy and Paige played together a lot okay. in separate teams, segregated teams, but on the same field, except that they fraternized. Bob Feller okay. was a, a Navy, uh, uh, um, was in the Navy during World War II. When he came back, okay. he missed a couple years of his career. He realized he needed to make more money and that his career was going, winding down. He started a corporation. He incorporated himself. He's the first baseball player to do that. And okay. with this corporation, promoted giant fucking barnstorming games where they flew in planes across the country all the way to California. They played Los Angeles and, and San Francisco. With Satchel okay. Page's All-Stars and Bob Feller's All-Stars. And okay. the difference was Bob Feller never cared where they stayed and did not make arrangements for them. So they had their own thing. They flew in their own plane. There's famous pictures of yeah. all of them with their hats on, standing outside the plane, right? And But Bob Feller did play with him. So Bob Feller's nickname for his 20-year career in baseball was Rapid Robert because he was through so hard. He okay. really threw hard, like he okay. hard. Okay. And so- the ball, the newspapers called him Robert Robert. Satchel Page called him Bob Rapid. <laughs> <laughs> so anytime you see a mention of of, of, of Bob Feller, Bob Rabbit, <laughs> Bob Rapid, yeah, you go. You know, we played a game against uh, Old Diz, and then there'd be a game with Bob Rapid. Like he got <laughs> everyone, you know. So this article came out, and everybody in America read it, and all of a sudden, Satchel Page, who'd been playing for twenty years in the Negro Leagues, was a 
a national people white people have been going to see him obviously white people but were allowed at league games yeah white people okay. were allowed at league games they played in white people stadiums so white people came white right. people were well aware that there was a whole underground of baseball that was being played by right. the other race where all these superstars were josh gibson and cannonball redding and 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 newt allen and dave malarker and i could name a million of them. so wow uh then the big leagues opened up and the year after Jackie went in, the Cleveland Indians were in a pennant race and they brought Paige to pitch for them. Uh, he was pitching for Kansas City, Monarchs. They brought him to Cleveland, gave him a tryout on the field. He was 40-something, easily. He might have been 50. Right. The, the guy who was managing the team was also the shortstop named Lou Boudreau, who was a big slugger that year. So he says, why don't you run around the field and loosen up a little bit? Well, one of Paige's main rules was avoid running at all costs, right? <laughs> He, he hated running. Um, yeah. And when he pitched in the Negro Leagues, he'd have the outfield sit down or sometimes the outfield come off the field or sometimes mm -hmm. they'd play cards while he pitched to guys in games. Right. That's Just, how flashy he was. Right, the right. sign said, the sign said, Satchel Page pitches tomorrow, guaranteed to strike out the side. Right. Oh. And he was big and tall and skinny. And his foot right. went up like that when he pitched, right? His foot. Okay. On the bottom of his baseball shoe, he wrote the word strike. So that's what you <laughs> saw when his foot came up. And then he threw a real hard <laughs> fastball. Yep. So right. that's how colorful he was. And he had names for all of his pitches. Long Tom, Short Tom, uh, 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 the Dipsy Doodle, which was an off-speed pitch that went like that. Right. And then my favorite He made one, up the term Dipsy Doodle? Well, he, uh, think I think he, it was called the Whipsy Dipsy Do. Okay. Um, and then there was uh, another one that was called the B-Ball. And then they said, why is it called the B-Ball satchel? And he said, because it be where I want it to be. <laughs> he also said, if you didn't know how old you were, how old would you be? Because he didn't know how old he was. Oh, okay. You know, it was the records, you know, he wasn't yeah. born in a hospital and, you know, it was written in a Bible. And, right, you know, right. Uh, right. So, uh he got to play in the major leagues. So he tried out. Yeah. And Boudreaux said, he started to run and then he realized, I, I, I hate running. So he walked back over <laughs> and he said it was as nervous as he ever was. And he was never nervous. He was big mouth man. He talks smack, right? right? He talks smack. He'd yell at you on the field. Cation, I'm going to put you on your ass, right? And then he'd throw <laughs> it at you and yell, you know, that's how he, that's how he played, man. He was that colorful. And okay. um, fans loved him. Loved yeah. him. I mean, he was the biggest draw in black baseball. He quit every team. They they tried to bar him. That didn't work. He, he started his own team. You know what I mean? Like it just didn't matter. He'd show up at yeah. game time. White cops would stop him because he'd be driving his Buick a thousand miles an hour because he's late. And white right. cops would stop him and go, it's a $25 fine. And those days they would find you right at your car, like Montana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he'd go, here's 50. I'm coming back this way tomorrow. Oh, that's where that joke came from. Yeah. Good for you, yeah. Satchel Page. Right? So <laughs> That's awesome. He, uh, Boudreaux got in to hit against him. Wait, so, so he told the guy that he wasn't going to run. Right. He comes back to the mound and Boudreaux goes, all right, I'll take a few swings against you. Cause mm -hmm. I'm, he led the league in hitting that year. So he was a legitimate person to take a swing against. So he gets into the box. He gets into the batter's yep. box and Paige fucking throws a bunch of strikes and he gets a couple of loud <laughs> fouls. And he, after uh, 10 minutes, he's like, all right, all right. <laughs> They gave him a major league contract. Welcome to pitched, the team. <laughs> yeah. He pitched um, uh, uh, 
he sold the stadium out. Cleveland Stadium in those days held 80,000 people. So his first starts in the big leagues, the place was heaving with people, right? And he had a good record. He won like seven or eight games, um, relieved in the World Series. He's the first black pitcher to play in a major league World Series. He relieved in the 1948 World Series. Cool. There's a plaque to him in Cleveland at the outfield still. Um, and then okay. at the end of the year, mind you, this man was almost 50 years old. They talked about making him rookie of the year. The sports writers were voting for him. And he said, I'm not certain what year they have in mind. <laughs> and so that's why he was great. I'll stop there because I think we've had enough, but he was just such a great player. And, well, let me say one last thing. Uh, I okay. host the Negro. I've hosted I was, the Negro. I was going to say, please say one last thing because we're at a, a little over an hour and you're right. I mean, this could go on for days and it's awesome. Greg Proops, everybody find him. Please tell me one more thing. Uh, I host the Negro Leagues Hall of Game ceremony and I have for the last three years. Uh, Jennifer kind of hooked me up with the president, Bob Kendrick. I went to, I was doing okay. a gig at the improv in Kansas City. Right. He came to the show. Uh, we spent hours talking baseball after the show. So cut to. The, ne the next year, they needed someone to host it. He had me host it. This is 2015, so, or cool. 16s. So I, I did, oh, sorry. I did 17, 18, and 19. Right. And met all these ballplayers. Maury Wills, Dave Parker, Dave Stewart, uh, uh, Eddie Murray, who were famous ballplayers. You don't know them, but if you knew about baseball, you no, would. No, no, no. And, and you've, de you've decided to re um, remember their we, names, which is great. We, right. We couldn't do it last year because of the plague. Right. So they're going to have it this year, but they'll probably do it virtually because last year was the absolute 100th anniversary. Okay. Here's my point. Eddie Murray was a famous ball player in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. He played for famously Baltimore and then later Cleveland. And then here in Los Angeles, he was a star with the Dodgers in the 80s. He led the league in hitting here. Now, okay. Eddie Murray, 65. Today's his birthday. I had the chance to meet him. Oh. We had wine afterward. We, we ate ribs together. I, he signed a thousand things for me. I riffed with him on stage. He's from Compton. And he had 10 people in his family, including many sisters. And he said his sisters were good enough to play in the big leagues. Why do I bring this up? Oh, wow. Because yeah. a pitcher from the Negro Leagues named Chet Brewer, who was a very awesome pitcher, started when he came back to Compton, a baseball academy for black people. Okay. And all these kids went through the Chet Brewer Baseball Academy, including Ozzie Smith, the Wizard of Oz from St. Louis, and many other famous Los Angeles baseball players. Okay. Eddie Murray went there, too. So he knew Chet Brewer. So this is an ancient history. He's 65. Right. I'm 61. He played ball in the 70s and 80s. Anybody who's a big, deep baseball fan knows who Eddie Murray is. He's the, one of the greatest switch hitters of all time. Jennifer and I were at a game. Where in the first inning he hit a home run right uh, left-handed, and then he switched sides, and three innings later hit a home run from the other side of the plate. That's how good he was, right? and he did that a bunch of times. Okay, so we're in the bus going from uh, 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 the barbecue to the gig to do a sound check, and Dick Allen's in the back, and Dick Allen, who passed away just recently, played for, notably for the Phillies and the White Sox and the Dodgers, but uh, he came up in the '60s. He was the first black player to play professional ball against white people in the state of Arkansas, right? The Phillies okay. farm club was in Little Rock, Little Rock. So he said he got there and he was 20 something and they were throwing um, coins at him and uh, 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 bottles, right? At his head. He was out in the, you know. Right, right. right? So Just... by the end, that's the beginning of the season. By the end of the season, they gave him a car. 
He was the <laughs> next, he, they won the pennant. He was the most valuable player of the whole league. Mm-hmm. A, a, a bouquets, a loving cup, a right. radio, a stereo, <laughs> right? And, Key to the city. He, yep. He was, he was scouted by a Negro League player named Judy Johnson, who famously played on those teams I was talking about in the 30s. Judy right. Johnson became a scout. And his name was Judy. So this is an ancient history. So we're all three right. in the bus. Dick Allen's in the back with Jennifer. And Eddie Murray's making fun of them because that's how he is. Right. Jennifer sits in the back with Dick Allen. And Eddie Murray goes, back of the bus. The manager's got his eyes on you. Right? Like it. Right. And uh, Dick Allen tells us that story. And then Eddie Murray goes, okay. When I was in the minors in 1978, we were playing in North Carolina. And um, we couldn't go in the restaurants. He goes, 78. He goes, we sat on the bus and the other guys went in and brought us back food in a bag. And I said, Eddie, this is 1970. Yeah, he went up to the bigs in 79 or it might have been 77. He goes, right. I assure you, this is then. And I'm like, what? they wouldn't let you any. Mm-mm. So to be at the Negro League Museum with these players who knew right. Negro Leaguers and Dick Allen told me that he met, he knew 45 Negro Leaguers. But of course, Eddie, Eddie Murray had gone, was a teammate, was a teenage high school teammate of Ozzie right. Smith. They're both from Los Angeles. And Ozzie was there uh, too. He was at this ceremony. And I went over to Ozzie Smith because he came up on stage to do a thing. And I said, do you want to introduce Eddie Murray? And this is how moving it is. Ozzie Smith goes, no, you do it. This is his lifetime friend, right? Who went yeah. to the Chet Brewer Baseball Academy with him. Yeah. So all the years that I've done it, the three years, I've bawled like a child afterward because it right. means more to me than my family. I literally love some of these people more than members of my family. <laughs> and members of my family are white supremacists, assholes. They're, right. You know, like every family yeah. in America. It's yeah. just, there's no escaping it if you're white. There are people in your family who voted for 45. They voted for him again during the middle of the plague because, yeah. you know, Black Lives Matter, right? They're, they're yeah. So the, the kindness and the respect and the beauty of these people's... Oh, and last year at the uh, 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 Negro League Hall of Game, Sharon Robinson, Jackie's daughter. Okay. By the That's way, neat. Jackie's wife is still alive. Oh, She wow. was on the phone with her mother. She was on the oh. phone with Jackie's wife. So I got her to sign... She's an author and an educator. Sure. I got her to sign autographs. Everybody. You take pictures with them. They're lovely. We have a barbecue lunch. Then we have a big dinner. And then we have a big award sing. And they show clips of everybody. And I interview them and talk about their how their fabulous careers and everything. And because yep. I'm old, I saw a lot of them. Right. <laughs> so I can actually personally. Right. Yeah. I can say I was at a game where you jumped over the fence. I saw a. a Eric Davis climbed up the fence at San Francisco. And I said, you went right over the top of the fence like this, reached up and caught the ball over the fence and came back down on the field. And, and he went, I liked playing in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I have to look up the Willie Mays thing because that sounds amazing. That's it's famous. Called, it's called The Catch. And if you look okay. it up on YouTube, there'll be a million films of it. Oh, good. Because I wish to see it. The Catch. The Catch. Greg uh, uh, Proops. Uh, we have to, it's been like three years since you've been on and it's, I know, right? so, uh, this has been so great. Everybody, you have like, you must have, um, where are they going? Gregproops.com. It's at yeah, gregproops.com Greg is where everything is. I got a Patreon. I got a cameo. Uh, the Jennifer and I did a show last night that just dropped two seconds ago where, yeah. um, we talk about Lawrence Frilling the poet passed away. Um, okay. 
this week. He was 101. Jennifer worked at City Lights with him because um, he was wow. the owner of City Lights in San Francisco. So she told a bunch City of City Lights, words. a yeah. bookstore right after the 2016 election. I went in and I said, I'm looking for something light. And the woman who worked there said, that's not really our forte. <laughs> So. <laughs> they, they don't, they don't, they don't, they've always been political and they don't do light. Uh, my, uh, friend was too Jeff, funny. my friend Jeff Davis has been going there for years and he said, what I can never get over is whatever I bring to the counter, the person behind the counter sniffs, right? And goes, oh. <laughs> so he was there about five, six years ago and he rings me. I'm on the road and he's like, I'm at City Lights, but I don't want to get sneered at. What should I buy? And I said, get Suetonius. Uh, the 12 Caesars and um, I one of Jennifer's books uh, it was uh, now I'm forgetting the name of it uh, a, a woman offer from the 20s uh, Juna Barnes okay okay. so he goes to the counter with those two and the person looks down and goes nice selection <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen find Greg Proops and do all the things that he tells you to do uh, because he is a delight <clears throat> and Rangers you know the rules out there take care of each other my hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat. My hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh, my God. We, why don't we just call that as the end of the show?